I'd like to introduce to you um, Solvay's nephew. Um, he gets his good looks from me, but he's Solvay's nephew. Uh, pastor Stephen Preuss, uh, who is a pastor in a little town in Iowa called Vinton. Vinton. And uh, he just received his, um, his uh, STM degree, Master's of Sacred Theology, which is a secondary academic degree from the seminary. And we were very fortunate that we could actually uh, draw him down from Fort Wayne for this event because of the fact that Johannes Bugenhagen, as you will now find out, is an individual who is extremely significant relative to the area of Pomerania where we are going to be going with our heritage tour. So I'm going to turn it over to him and maybe we could start with a prayer. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you sent your spirit on the day of Pentecost and gave to your church your word and your sacraments and the unity we have through the blood of Christ. As this word has been proclaimed throughout the years, we think upon a man who proclaimed it and organized this proclamation throughout Northern Europe, a man who you raised up for yourself that the spirit might do his work through him. Bless our study today of your holy word that we might also receive this blessing of Pentecost, your Holy Spirit, and peace with God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Johannes Bugenhagen, you can call him also Pomeranus. Pomeranus comes from the Latin of uh, Pomerania, by the sea is what it means. And so they're right there on the Baltic Sea is where he's from. So his early years, I'll just give you kind of a little basis of, of who he is and why we talk about him from Pomerania. And I'll point you to a couple of maps here as well. He was born in Volin, Pomerania, not Germany. That's a little borough in Berlin, so don't get confused. Uh, it's way, way up uh, on the coast of the Baltic Sea. So if you look at your maps that you have there, that third page, you will see a nice little map of Europe on the top in 1500. And you see that the it's not quite the same as it is today. So you'll see all sorts of different uh, differences in, as far as that goes. You'll see notably no Germany is listed there. And yet you see Germany there. You see Saxony right in the middle. And up there, Mecklenburg, that's the area right by the Baltic Sea on the northern part where we see the northeastern part of Germany and then the northwestern part of Poland. I have a little uh, zoomed in picture there of Pomerania in 1400 and you'll see these these cities that we're going to be talking about. So I'm just going to point that out to you. The next couple of maps to show you kind of a, if you know any of the geography, uh, this might help you out as to where exactly he's from. So as you, we're going through this, I'll just point you to those. He was born in Avalon, Pomerania, on June 24th. Uh, and he was born two years after Martin Luther was. So he was his contemporary and a very good friend. And we'll talk about him as, as his pastor as well. But June 24th, this is the nativity of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, uh, that day, if you're born on it, uh, that's the name that you get. And so he was baptized right after that. Uh, his father was, and there's a nice little picture of the crest. Does anybody know what that is? A griffin. So that's their, their national em emblem uh, for Pomerania. Uh, but the first thing we want to say is that we really don't know much about his childhood. Uh, in these early years, the only thing we really have is where he was born. We know his father's name was Gerhardt. He was a burger, meaning he was kind of upper middle class. Uh, and he was also a city councilman, an alderman. 
And so with that knowledge, we kind of understand why he ended up as the kind of organizing reformer that he ended up being, because he was able to go to the cities, not so much the rural areas, but to the cities and talk with those people because he, he knew them. Uh, and he was one who was able to speak with them quite well. Um, now, his elementary education was done by a mother superior, a nun, and uh, she must have really been strict and, and taught him a lot because he was exceptionally gifted uh, in Latin and in so many different ways uh, before he ever went to the university. And so, with that said, the only thing we really know from him and his own writing is he said, I love the Holy Scriptures from youth on. And so he was not somebody who came maybe later on and thought, oh yeah, I, I like this. He loved it. He loved scriptures. He just didn't understand them yet. And that's why Luther became such an important person for him. He ended up going to the University of Greifswald, January 24th, 1502. That would put him at 16 years old. Uh, and he was an exceptional student there. Uh, he excelled. This was a very young university. Uh, to us, it would be a very old university since it still exists. Uh, and it started in the 15th century, right? But it's very young when he started going there. So uh, by going there, he ended up learning two different trains of thought. Now, scholasticism was how the Roman Catholics would teach the priests and the people. They'd teach them through commentaries. And so you didn't go to the original source. You'd go to the people who talked about the original source. Well, what kind of a problem would occur because of that? Well, the Roman Catholic Church it was the problem that they ended up having. And so scholasticism was on its way out. He learned what we call humanism. Now today you'll hear about secular humanism that goes together with atheism. That's not what we're talking about. Humanism is simply a way of learning. You return to the sources. You've probably heard classical education before. Ad fontes, to the fountain, to the source. Go back to the sources. Go back to the early authors of scripture, of history, of poetry. That's the way he was learning and kind of embracing this uh, as he was learning at the university. So he exited exceptional in Latin, but Roman Catholic in theology. And you listen to the things he says. He says, you know, nobody can be holy, but those who God gives grace to, he'll accept their holiness if they just try their best. So as good Lutherans, you'd say to yourself, no, that's, that's not the case. <laughs> I would hope, right? Uh, but he was so good at Latin that Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon, who was kind of the number two reformer, right? Luther is number one. We all know that. Philip Melanchthon was number two. Johann Bugenhagen, number three, right? He was the, Philip Melanchthon was the best at Latin. And yet he looked at Johannes Bugenhagen and called him Grammaticus. So he's this grammarian. He knows this stuff so well. He really excelled in it. So those were his early years. He then matriculated to Treptow. And in this uh, place, he ended up, uh, after his university education, he was appointed a rector or a principal of a Latin school. And you can see on the map how, how that moves around uh, along that Baltic Sea. But this was an exceptional uh, man then, to be appointed as a principal at such a young age in order to teach. And so he did this for uh, several, several years. He lectured on the Psalms. He remained at this uh, all the way through until uh, we hear about him getting together with Luther. A very effective teacher. He was so effective that people would come from hundreds of miles. The priests would go and listen to him. He wasn't even a priest until 1509. Uh, the monks would come and listen to him. 
His rooms were packed, and people would specifically come to study there under Bugenhagen. Very well respected, and this capable administrator is very important because this is what made Bugenhagen Bugenhagen. Uh, we know him as Luther's pastor, but he is the one who, without him, all of what was going on, the ideas of Luther, all of theology, would not have been implemented in specific cities and regions. So you need men who are going to be excellent theologians, but they aren't always the men who know how to implement these things in specific places. And that was Bugenhagen. Uh, so that was very important that he learned that. He was ordained a priest in 1509. He had really zero seminary education, but you know, in those days, that's the way it worked. <laughs> very few details from those years. Uh, and so we're kind of left with a little bit of, uh, we don't know what's going on. He was just a very effective teacher, a good administrator. His reputation uh, was, was excelling at this time. Uh, he did write in, in around 1517, 1518, a history of Pomerania. And yet it didn't get published until 150 some years later after uh, he was long gone and his son was long gone. He was then appointed a lecturer after several years at the new monastic school that they started in uh, Belbug, which is uh, right there in Treptow. So then the big thing we really want to know is how Bugenhagen received Luther. So humanism was something that, that they were all learning this in Northern Europe. They knew they needed to go back to the sources. The Greek New Testament was coming to them. And Bugenhagen loved this. And he heard that Luther also was teaching certain things and that it was, it was kind of in line with this. For Bugenhagen, it was all about education and ethics. He saw the priests, they were not acting like they should. They, they were drunks, they were, uh, I mean, they'd have pregnant nuns, they'd have all sorts of problems. And he saw this and he said, this isn't what scripture says. And so he was an ethical reformer, that was it. He wanted the priests to act like priests, the lady to act like lady, like Christians. And so that's what his entire basis of this reformation was all about at the time. He received from one of these pastors in, in the area, uh, I believe it was in uh, 1520, uh, Luther's work started reaching here. And he had this conversion when he had Luther's Babylonian captivity of the church. Now this document by Luther, he goes after the Roman papacy. He says that the Roman Catholic Church uh, does not need the Pope. The Pope has caused so many problems. And he lists them all out. And he also went after the seven sacraments that the Roman Catholic Church had proposed and said there are only two sacraments, that of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They impart to us the grace of God, the forgiveness of sins. Bugenhagen gave this a very, very short reading. And he said, whoever wrote this document, not since our Lord Jesus died on the cross, has a greater heretic appeared to the Christian church. So, Something happened, right? We all love conversion stories. He reread it again and again and again over the next few weeks. And he had this kind of coming to moment where he said, everyone in the world is blind except for this man. And he wanted to know more. He wrote to Luther. Luther ended up sending him uh, how a Christian should live, the freedom of the Christian of 1520. These were kind of uh, companion uh, treatises that Luther wrote. And what was so nice about this is that for, for Bugenhagen, he wanted to teach not only the faith, 
that we are saved through God's grace in Christ Jesus, justified through faith alone by God's grace alone, but also the fruit that would come from it in good works. We just prayed this prayer after our service where you know, we, we asked God that he would increase our faith toward him and our fervent love toward one another. That was Bugenhagen. And he really wanted to emphasize that. And so Luther's freedom of the Christian, that a Christian, according to justification, we are justified before God by the blood of Jesus 100%, right? Everything he did is counted as our own. And that means we are perfectly free lords, subject to nobody, right? We reign with Christ. But at the same time, we have one another in our lives. And so we're also perfectly dutiful servants, subject to all. And we serve one another in our lives. That's what our good works are for, not for our salvation, but to serve one another, as God has given us to do. Luther very compactly wrote on this. Bugenhagen, as my father-in-law would say, he would not use one word when 10 would suffice, right? So he's got this treatise that he ends up writing, which is way, way, way longer, uh, but also quite good and says the exact same kind of things. Uh, so that's Luther's meeting of, or Bugenhagen's meeting of Luther. He actually moves to Wittenberg then, and this is for life, even though we'll hear that he had a few times where he went away. Uh, but in the spring of 1520, 21. And if anybody knows history of Lutheranism, 1521 was a big year for Martin Luther. It was mentioned in the sermon too uh, today that Luther gets up before, uh, you know, the Diet of Worms. And he ends up leaving very shortly after Bugenhagen gets to Wittenberg, so he doesn't really get to know Luther very well uh, right at first. Instead, we have him uh, kind of with Philip Melanchthon and others in Wittenberg while Luther's off at the Wartburg writing on all sorts of different things and translating uh, the scriptures. He went from a, a student at first to a private lecturer. His private lectures were on the Psalms again. He's very popular for his Psalms commentaries, his lectures. But the rooms filled up. And so Philip Melanchthon said, no, you need to start lecturing at the university now. And so he moved him to the university. He didn't become an actual full-time professor until 1533, but he was teaching at the university beginning uh, already when Luther was absent. He was against these radical reforms of Karlstadt and the Zwickau prophets. What happened there was these men from just south of Wittenberg came up to Wittenberg and they started saying that we don't need the scriptures, we need the Holy Spirit. Today's Pentecost. How do you get the Holy Spirit today? Through the scriptures, right? Bugenhagen wanted educational reform, ethical reform, and now he's got this gospel's bright light, and he loves it all. These prophets were saying, close down the schools because the Holy Spirit will give you knowledge all by himself, without any means of teaching or, or priests or teachers. And so Bugenhagen, who was a very even-keeled man, uh, was, was very forceful against these men, and he, uh, Luther, credited uh, with much of the kind of staving off of those men before Luther came back. He got married to a woman whose name was <laughs> Walperga. I have no problem with the name, it's just very uncommon. In Germany, apparently, there is a Walperga festival. This was a saint from the ninth century, and they call it Walpurgia, I think. Anyway, she was one who would 
stave off witches and things like that, so you'd pray to her for, for those kind of things in the Roman Catholic theology. And so uh, they would, again, if you're born on that day, you're named whatever the saint's name is. That's why Martin Luther's named Martin. Uh, and so they got married. Now, why did they get married? Well, Luther had written against uh, these monastic vows. And these monastic vows where you take a vow and you take a vow of celibacy and you would not get married. And it became a, a quite contentious thing. And this is something Bugenhagen really, really latched on to. He saw the abuses of monks and how they'd make these vows and pretend to do good works, and they weren't real good works. They were just flashy works, works that people might be impressed with. And so he went after this, and the best way he thought he could do it was to get married. So he finds this, this young woman, and she's terrified because I can't marry a priest. What's going to happen to me? And so she actually breaks off the engagement. He says, ah, whatever, okay. Goes next month, finds another one, and she says, okay. And so romantic love, right? In, in the 16th century, that's the way it works. Uh, all this time then, he becomes one who, you know, he's got children coming, he needs money. The elector doesn't want to support him because he's kind of wary of what will happen if I appoint this guy and give him a stipend at the university to be a teacher and he's married. That's going to cause a lot of problems for me, so I'm not going to do it. So he didn't. And... Luther said, next to Philip Melanchthon, the best theologian in the world is Johannes Bugenhagen. And he didn't want to lose him, but they were about to because they had no money, and he wanted to stay there in Wittenberg and teach, but he couldn't. And so uh, he was about to leave, but then chance would have it. He ended up having a pastorate there in Wittenberg. The pastor died. He'd been there for a long time. And Bugenhagen ended up becoming the pastor in Wittenberg City Church, St. Mary's it's called, from 1523 until he died. And so uh, with that, he was a faithful, beloved pastor. Uh, there were those who would, would speak to Bugenhagen uh, before they would speak to anybody else among the reformers, including Luther, because he was his pastor. He was the one who married him and baptized his children. He was the one that, I mean, you just think about this. Martin Luther would go to church on a Sunday morning, and his pastor was this man. Every week he was listening to this man preach to him God's word, feeding his soul. And so for Luther, uh, this was a, more than just a reformer, co-reformer. This was, this was in many ways one of his best friends, the one he'd confess his sins to, the one who would forgive him and get him through uh, the difficult times. And so uh, there are many stories we could tell. Uh, I'll tell one just for the sake of time, that in 1527 and in 1537, Luther thought he was going to die. Luther had these emotional struggles. We might even call it depression today. I mean, he had many. He called it melancholy. And he would have these really difficult times, and Bugenhagen noticed that he would have physical problems too at the same time. And so 1537, he actually wrote, this was, what, nine years before he dies, he wrote his last will and testament, and Bugenhagen actually wrote it out for him as he was speaking it. Now, he didn't die until later, so he actually did this twice for him, uh, and, and a very, very uh, capable man. He wasn't afraid of telling Luther when he needed to sharpen up, but he was also not afraid to tell Luther the comforting consolation of the gospel uh, that we have in Christ. He was known for his long sermons. Luther makes this really funny. He says, every high priest must have a sacrifice, and today we 
for the sacrifice of Johannes Bugenhagen <laughs> because he's got this long, 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 long sermon. I mean, I'm talking an hour to an hour and a half, right? And so Catherine von Bora, Luther, Luther's wife, Katie, she would, she would say, oh, goodness, is his assistant going to be there today, you know? Um, it, was, it really was like that. At the same time, he was a popular preacher. He was very good. The way he characterized it, he said, we need bread and water as Christians. That's the bare minimum, right? Luther gives you roasted and fried food, right? It's good stuff. I give you bread and water. It's what you need, right? And so he was a, a very humble man in that way, too. He defended it based on John 8, verse 47, uh, where he said, it says, he that is of God hears God's word. Um, but that verse, I'll tell you, does not tell you how long the sermon actually needs to be. Um, he was also very good at kind of application. I'll just read you one application he had. He said, if I say to a boy, get me a can of beer and I'll give you a coat, how can he possibly earn salvation by doing so? A Christian, therefore, does good deeds because it pleases God, not because he wishes to acquire a great merit or reward like those Pharisees and hypocrites are monks. You receive a reward, therefore, not because you have labored for it, but because the Lord has promised it. And so he's always pointing back to why we do good works. Our good works, he, he was very, very uh, clear on we need to be doing these, but not for our salvation. It's that our wives need us, our husbands need us, our children need us, parishioners need us, right? Uh, we need each other, and we are the communion of saints as, as we receive the good gifts and then love one another. I had mentioned he remained a professor and received his doctorate in 1533. In those days, they'd give you a topic, and you would have a day, and then you would argue it. And he was very capable of doing so. He did it, I believe, for four hours and uh, just knocked it out of the park and uh, was, was earned his doctorate there and became official faculty in 1533. One last thing about uh, Bugenhagen with Luther. Luther... Uh, his sermon for his funeral in 1546 is one of the most touching things. If you can find it, uh, he, he pretty much says, I don't know how I'm going to get through this because I'm pretty sure I'm going to weep the whole time. And how, if I am weeping, am I going to be able to comfort you? And as he's saying these things, he ends up comforting them in just the most wonderful way, pointing them back to Christ, pointing them to what this man, Luther, had been proclaiming and why we call ourselves Lutherans, why we love uh, Luther so much, because he brought the pure gospel to the church. He used revelation to show that where the pure gospel is brought back. He was the first one to refer to Luther in scripture as the angel that comes down uh, and proclaims that everlasting gospel. How long am I going to? Um, uh, about, uh, 15, okay, good. So, notable contributions. First is as a theologian. You see the, the lectures on the Psalms became very popular. So he was, he was reading the Psalms from a very early age. And what he ended up doing was taking his lectures, and they, this was very common. Luther's, a lot of his works were simply lectures that they would turn into so-called commentaries. And the notes were taken down and then they put them out. For Bugenhagen, he would find Christ in every Psalm. And he thought that that was the way we need to read scripture. We need to know where Christ is in all of this. And so every one of his psalms and his commentaries was based on that, finding Christ in it. 
uh, many other commentaries on scripture, uh, notably his translation of the Bible into Low German, so two different uh, Germans, right? And so he's translated into Low German for the people and actually reached the printers before Luther's did, the full Bible did, which is, shows how, how diligent a worker he really is. I mentioned of faith and good works. This was his major contribution as far as uh, what it means to be a Christian. How do you live your life? Again, Luther's freedom of the Christian, he had of faith and good works. His harmony on the passion, resurrection, and ascension actually is probably one of the most popular things you're going to find even today. Many of the harmonies you'll have of the passion reading of the sufferings of Christ during Lent are based on work that Bugenhagen did. Uh, and so he, he has a lot of influence in that regard uh, for the church even today. And then also the Lord's Supper controversy. Luther, there's a man named Ulrich Zwingli, and Luther thought he was just kind of like a fly, and he's just annoying, and he had plenty of things to do, and so he didn't want to deal with him, and he said, okay, you, Bugenhagen, you go deal with this guy. And so Bugenhagen did. He kind of treated him like, you know, a fly, and kind of very, very, I don't know, unacademically, just kind of cast him off to the side. Well, Zwingli comes back with a fierce diatribe against Luther and Bugenhagen, all these guys on the Lord's Supper saying it's not the real body and blood of Christ. How could you believe this? And so Bugenhagen kind of got the air taken out of him and had to take Luther and, and others to help him then respond. And he did so with gusto. And he defended the Lord's Supper and the real presence, that Christ is truly present under the forms of bread and wine uh, in, in the supper uh, all the way throughout the rest of his life. In fact, Luther's last confession, so we call it, were, were the small called articles. He wrote those for the council that was supposed to happen. And uh, in it, he was kind of, it was a good confession on the Lord's Supper, but it wasn't as hard-hitting as Bugenhagen wanted it to be. And Bugenhagen made it really hard-hitting and made sure it was as clear as day that Christ's true body and blood that he died with and rose with and ascended into heaven with is present with us. Jesus is with us even today in the supper. Another kind of rather funny occurrence, it's, it's a sad at first, but Martin Bootser was a reformer who sided with John Calvin, and he translated the psalm commentary of Bugenhagen, also Luther's sermon postals, which were a collection of sermons for the, the pastors and, and even fathers too in the household to, to then read to their families. And when he translated, every time he translated the Lord's Supper stuff, he translated it not the way they wrote it, but so that it would say it was just a symbol. Well, Luther found out about this, and Bugenhagen did too, and some of the most colorful language comes out <laughs> as to what they think of what he just did. At the, the Marburg Colloquy, where Luther famously wrote down, uh, you know, is on, on, on the uh, table, where he said, is means is, right? When he says, this is my body, that means it is his body. At that, he actually, Luther said to Bootser, not Zwingli, to Bootser, we have a different spirit. And he said that because he was very serious about how terrible it was that he would take Bugenhagen and Luther's teaching on the Lord's Supper and present it in a different way. So, did you have something on? Okay. Uh, 
for the sake of time, we'll, we'll keep on going here. Oh, no, I wanted this quote from Of Faith and Good Works. This is so wonderful. He says this in his Of Faith and Good Works. No prince, no rich man, no strong man, no one who magnified the world can have pleasant days on earth unless he has a clear conscience. A clear conscience and nothing else can bring happiness and can do so even to po- in poverty and need. And no one can have such conscience unless he believes in Christ. That's the foundation for everything that he then taught on good works. Uh, and certainly any of us who, who, you can gather up all the treasures in the world, but if you don't have Christ, what good is any of that? It's not going to give you the clear conscience. Now, the reason we want to talk about Bugenhagen, most especially, is because of his church organization, uh, and most particularly in a particular area. Now, there were what they called the Saxon visitations. The Saxon visitations uh, were within Saxony, Luther and the other reformers went to all of the different churches and would see how they were teaching the faith. Were they teaching the faith right? Luther found priests who didn't know the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, yet they knew all of the Latin mass because they could recite it every day. But they didn't know how to teach the Ten Commandments. He said, this is terrible. And they saw this then throughout Europe. The people didn't know. They were not taught. That's what Luther's catechisms then came out, the small catechism. Bugenhagen ended up translating that into low German as well, uh, his large catechism too. And this is where we want to kind of talk about Pomerania and Greifwald most in particular. He implemented the Reformation in eight different places. Uh, He was asked two times to do this before 1528, but it it fell through. The first time because he got married and they were scared. We better not call this guy because otherwise we'll get in trouble. Uh, And the second time because the people in Wittenberg said, no, you're our pastor, you're not going anywhere. Uh, And he he didn't, he stayed, he listened to them. And uh, then more and more calls came Luther kept on putting his name out to reform, to implement the Reformation in various places. So he would go there, and the first thing he would do is he'd get up into the pulpit, and he would preach them a law and gospel sermon, and he would teach them exactly what the Lutheran faith was all about. And then he said, I want you to have this all the time, and so we're going to implement this, and I'm going to work with you, with the people in the, in the congregations, the dukes, uh, the, the city council, and so on, in order to implement the Reformation in this place. Some places it was well-received, some places not so much. Um, but he still worked at it. The things that he would uh, do were he would write these church orders, and he'd show them how the liturgy ought to be conducted. He'd show them, he actually wrote liturgies. I grew up uh, for a while in the little Norwegian synod, and we actually sang his liturgy. Bugenhagen liturgy. It was always a a fun thing to sing that. Uh, And he wrote many of those. He always reformed the education that was going on in a city to make sure that the city knew how to educate its young, that the pastors would be preaching to the young, that they would be teaching uh, the catechism and whatnot. Uh, Also, this poor fund, from a very early stage, he was very concerned about the poor. And there's a reason for it. He attacked good works. What kind of good works were done by monks and others in the Roman Catholic Church at the time? Almsgiving. So he's attacking almsgiving because almsgiving is something that they're saying actually would merit your justification before God. Bugenhagen attacks that 
what might happen if you attack that type of a teaching? It looks as if you don't care about who? The poor. And so he said, no, I do care about the poor. Every one of his church orders has a very, very clear uh, teaching on how we take care of the poor within the city. Uh, the notable places he went to then, Braunschweig was in 1528, Hamburg in 1529, Lübeck in 1531, and then Pomerania in 1534 and 35. That's where he ended up uh, going back to his homeland. And the reason he was sent out, one of the big reasons too, was that he was able to uh, speak the language. If Luther were to have gone speaking high German and he'd gone over to Pomerania and started preaching from the pulpit, there would have been a whole lot of confusion. But Johannes Bugenhagen was one who could go up there and he could preach immediately, and they all understood what he was saying. So he was an invaluable resource for Luther and for the Reformation into Northern Europe. Uh, in Denmark, he ended up getting to uh, crown uh, the king and the queen, uh, Christian III, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful story to hear more about uh, maybe another time, but uh, Luther found that to be one of the greatest things that he crowned the prince, because he said this is what a real bishop should be doing. And the bishops in the Roman church weren't doing this. They were getting their money and they were getting their, their prestige and position, but they were not ordaining. And he did a whole lot of that. He was called a superintendent, not a bishop. He actually turned down a bishopric in Copenhagen. He also turned down a position at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, he restarted it. It had closed down. And he was able to uh, resurrect it through the help of uh, Christian III and others. And so he had a, a great, great influence in this regard. And his contributions uh, were, were endless as far as that goes. When it comes to his final years, it unfortunately were, it was embroiled in controversy. Uh, the Lutheran Church, after the, the small called wars, uh, had to deal with a whole lot of, of problems with the Roman Catholics again. Uh, and what happened with Bugenhagen, he kind of wanted, Luther died, he wanted to keep peace. And so he, it was called the adiaphoristic controversy. And what this controversy was is the Roman Catholics said, you can still teach, you know, your Lutheran teaching, but you're going to do all our ceremonies again. You're going to add all of them. You're going to do a Corpus Christi festival. You're going to elevate all the elements. You're going to do everything that we tell you to do. And they did. Uh, and that became a very contentious issue amongst the Lutherans. But at the same time, Bugenhagen, uh, he was not one who uh, gave up the teaching. And so we ought not look at him in that way. He was just one who unfortunately had a really rough last few, few uh, years. He died on April 20th, 1558 in Wittenberg. Uh, and he was buried actually under the altar at St. Mary's. And I wanted to point out this, this picture really quickly. If you look at this man right here in the white kind of beige robe, you can see Luther here, he's, he's raking something. He's got a hoe gardening, and they kind of look at him then as a cultivator. This was by Lucas Cranach the, the second, and this is at St. Mary's, I believe. Uh, and this is the vineyard of the Lord. He said, how do I want to be looked at when the Lord comes back? And he said, hard at work for the sake of the kingdom. 
for the sake of the vineyard of the Lord. And so you see all of these, these different features of it. I wrote an article, I talked about him as, as kind of his work was the trellis, and then I found this, and I thought, he's not the trellis, I guess he's the hoe, right? He, he, he's the garden hoe. So, uh, but that's a, a good way for us to, to remember him as the one who kind of cultivated all of this Reformation teaching into Northern Europe uh, in ways that uh, had lasting influence in some areas. Uh, to this day, the University of Greifswald is kind of the leader in scholarship on Bugenhagen since that's where he went to the university. Uh, and there are plenty of German works that are being worked on right now. And we have two volumes now of his works in English, uh, which is a very recent thing, and which is a great thing, too, that we get more and more of the Reformation writers into English. I think that's where I'll leave it off for any questions or comments. See if this works. It does. Okay. Um, and I would like for them to um, please come up and just give us a little summary about themselves and who they are. Uh, Jessica, would you uh, please come and, and give us a little update on yourself here? Uh, Jessica, I think, uh, uh, comes from the Seymour area. Is that right? And uh, we, of course, there's nobody here from Seymour. Um, <laughs> There are a few around us, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to Advent. Well, um, I was adopted when I was three, so I originally came from Grace Lutheran Church in Columbus. Um, my parents moved to Zion Lutheran Church, or we all moved to Seymour. Um, when I graduated high school, I decided to come to IUPUI. So I kind of spent the past four years just kind of matriculating around Indianapolis. And then when I finally ended up here in Zionsville, how ironic that I would, I would move to an apartment complex that across the street is a Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. <laughs> 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 
So I thought, well, this can't be more perfect. So, <laughs> you know, um, my fiance and I decided to try it out. Um, and I was like, this is so cool. And I told my mom, I went home immediately. I was like, mom, this church is so similar to Zion. And I felt so at home here my first time. Um, so I decided to keep coming back. Um, recently, my fiance just joined the Air Force. So I will be moving in October. <laughs> but <laughs> it was so perfect that I found a little piece of home here while you know I'm away. And um, I'm thrilled to have found something that feels so similar to what I grew up with and what my faith is you know, embedded in. And I just am really, really excited to be getting married here in, Oct or in September. Oh my gosh, I'm so bad. <laughs> um, but I'm really excited to spend this part of my journey in my life someplace that I feel so comfortable in. So I appreciate all the you know, love and just comfort that I felt here while I'm here. Thank you very much. We're going to be giving uh, these new member packets to our new members, and there's a number at the top, and at the very top is a number that will be your box number. You find it out in the, uh, the narthex. And in that box number, uh, more important than Bibles and more important than hymnals, we have your offering envelopes, too. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good to have you here. Okay. Um, and now uh, another individual uh, through uh, some uh, very strong friendships that he had, Brian Hendershot. Brian, you want to come forward? Brian has some, some friends in our congregation and um, the way that the church works is that we bring our friends and our loved ones to church, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about himself. Thank you, sir. And thank you all for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, believe me. I grew up in Greenfield on the east side with some of the current members, and I didn't fall away from the faith. It's just I was lost a little bit, and through their guidance and some other friends and their guidance, I am back. So it's, a, it's an honor to be here. I live in Whitestown, live on a farm, take care of some animals. Uh, also have a, a real job that takes a lot of time for that as well. <laughs> uh, there's really not much more about me other than through the, the guidance and friendship of current members. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you here, and I want to shake your hand. Thank you. Thank you. All right, um, well, um, like mother, like daughter, uh, we are, would like Judy Durantis to please come forward. She's here. Her daughter has uh, already become a member of our congregation, and now also Judy is joining us as well. So can you, you want, why don't you stay down below? Yeah, I think that would be better. <laughs> I think so. So what do you want to know? There's a lot to know. We'd like a five-minute speech. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, just a, a little past background of where you came from. I grew up in St. Louis, and um, I, I got baptized when I was about a month old, and I've been Lutheran all my life and always gone to Lutheran Missouri Senate churches. Um, I've recently lived in Connecticut. I've just moved here from Connecticut, and I was there for 45 years. <clears throat> and... My daughter decided to move here. I have a son here, and my grandchildren are here. So my daughter decided to move here, and she was the only one close to me. She was in Mass, so I thought, well, why am I staying in Connecticut? So here I am. <laughs> and I love it here so far. The church is 
remind me so much more of what I grew up with than when I was in Connecticut. And, and uh, so I don't know. One of the things that I've done, I'm retired now. So I started out, I went to the University of Missouri and I, be, um, and I became a medical technologist and did that for a number of years. And then went back to school when I had little kids and became a CPA and went into the IRS and was an IRS agent for quite a few years. <laughs> And that's the exact kind of thing that you get from most people. <laughs> even, even people that knew you for years, you know, they take a physical step back from you. <laughs> you're doing. But it was a fun job. Well, Matthew was a tax collector too. I mean, um, and we're happy to have you. You didn't collect any. Okay. So you're the one that told every, sent everybody to jail. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, it's wonderful to have you. You have a wonderful daughter as well, and it's a great, great to have you as part of our church. So. Okay. Um, Holly Barano, uh, is she here? She is. Okay. Um, we are, this has been a, just a wonderful time. This is Pentecost, folks. Uh, here we are. Holly, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I was born in Florida, but my family moved around a lot, and we kept going back to Bremen, Indiana, where we were baptized and confirmed in St. Paul's Lutheran Church. Um, after I moved down to Indianapolis after college, I really didn't go to, I tried to find a church. I didn't find anywhere I was comfortable, so for many years, I didn't go to church. Um, Last fall, when my uh, mom was dying, uh, her pastor in Bremen asked a pastor from here to come visit us, and Pastor Grady came a couple of times, and we liked him so much that I just felt comfortable trying this church because I had at least a little bit of a connection, so uh, I've really enjoyed being here. Um, I do feel at home here, even though I don't know very many people, I only know the Zays, pretty much. Um, and they've been wonderful as pew mates, making me feel welcome. Um, I'm retired from the federal probation service, so <laughs> there's something else we have in common in 2016. So it's nice to have a fellow FedEx here. Um, I'm married. My husband is pretty much a creaster, so you'll see him twice a year, probably. Um, and we don't have children. We have fur babies. So that's about it. Okay. Well, um, she says she didn't know too many people, but we had our makeup makeup class. It was our second class, and she said that she was from Bremen, and the lady across from her, uh, Chelsea Schmenk, who will be was 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 not able to be here today. She will be here in a couple of Sundays. Um, Chelsea was also from Bremen, and they turned out that her mother, was my neighbor. her mother was your neighbor and all that kind of stuff, too. So it gets to be a small world. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. And last but not least, we have a high-powered Lutheran here among us, Patricia Von Stroh. Uh, she, um, she also... Um, has been an individual with a good long history of Lutheranism and a very interesting story as well. So 
we are going to love to hear everything that you have to say. Not everything, no. <laughs> Thank you. I was born in Seymour, by the way. Oh. <laughs> Did my student teaching in Seymour with Elvira Price. I don't know if Elvira's. Yeah? You know Elvira? Okay. Um, I, w I went to school in, I'm a retired Lutheran school teacher. I went to school in Ann Arbor uh, at Concordia. And then I went, I taught first in Saginaw, Michigan, and then in um, California, and then at uh, Our Shepherd in Avon. So I've traveled around a little bit while I've taught, but now that I'm back here for a while and join my family, I have three children, seven grandchildren, 15 great-great-great-grandchildren, and one and a half great-great-grandchildren. <laughs> so I'm enjoying my family here a lot. Um, I've traveled around the last year looking for the perfect Lutheran home. And as I went and visited all the different Lutheran churches, I kept coming back to this one the next week. So I just felt at home here. I love the liturgical service, and I feel so, much, so at home with this guy who's leaving. <laughs> and Pastor Brady has been so kind. So I'm very glad to be here. So thank you for having me. Well, we just are pleased <laughs> to have you, too. How fortunate we are as a congregation and how fast we have to get into the sanctuary for our second service. So uh, with that in mind and given that, uh, that uh, we have had such a fine presentation, let's at least accept uh, the blessing, okay? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen.